you know what I love about Jesus? It's this. Jesus loves stupid, empty, ungrateful, waffling, confused, suicidal sinners. Is that you today? I'm sure one of those words describe every one of us here. Maybe you've made some really stupid decisions and you're living with the consequences. Maybe you just feel empty on the inside. Maybe you're ungrateful. Maybe you're waffling back and forth. Maybe you're confused. Maybe you're suicidal. Maybe you've thought about ending it all. Jesus loves stupid, empty, ungrateful, waffling, confused, suicidal sinners. And we're going to see a whole bunch of those kinds of sinners in our passage today. And they are stupid because they refuse the mercy of God. They refuse the gospel. They have the gospel available to them through the sacrificial system, access to Yahweh, to the living God at the temple, but they want to worship God on their terms. In fact, instead of seeing themselves as sinners in desperate need of God's grace, the kings that we're going to look at today, they trade forgiveness for pleasure, sensual pleasure. They trade the life-giving and the reinvigorating and refreshing presence of the living God for sensual pleasure, for sacred prostitution. They would commit gross immorality with prostitutes in church, if you will, and call it worship. Their reproductive organs and what they do with them are the most important things about them. They walk in the ways of King Jeroboam. They refuse God. And that's a sad sentence right there, isn't it? They refuse God. They refuse life. They refuse hope. They refuse peace. They refuse to listen to God. They refuse to open up the empty hands of faith and just receive the mercy of God, but instead they will open up their hands and stick their fingers in their ears and say, la, 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 I can't hear you, Lord, la, 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 la. We don't want to do that today. We want to be open to what God has to say to us today in his word. We want to hear the word of the Lord. We want to open ourselves up to what God says to us because we are desperate, whether we know or admit it or not. God opens his heart to us in his word, and the people in our passage today don't give a hoot about it. So turn to 1 Kings chapter 15. We're now switching over to the northern kingdom of Israel, where we will see king after king after king walk away from the Lord. And so we're going to cover a lot of ground today, and it will not be pleasant. It's going to be a lot of so-and-so did evil, and -and so-and-so did evil, and -and so-and-so did evil, so get ready. Because we're going to get a front row seat to see what happens when people ignore God's clear word. When they stiff arm 
his steadfast love when they refuse his new morning mercies. We'll see a king literally backstab and kill another king, one of his teammates, and then he'll kill that guy's whole family. And then that king and his family will become dinner for a bunch of wild dogs and hungry birds. And then that king's son will have one too many Budweiser's and get his throat slit. And then another king will only be a king for seven days before he kills himself as he lights a bunch of matches and burns down his whole house. All of them will ignore the word of God. All of them will stiff arm Jesus. All of them will refuse his mercy. And so let me tell you right at the beginning of the sermon as I scratch the spot on my leg that is driving me nuts. If you stiff arm Jesus, it never ends well. If you are rebelling against Jesus today and you know it, you have that precious darling sin that you've been taking care of and feeding and grooming and you don't want to let go of it, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be gross immorality like these kings today. It could be bitterness and anger. Whatever that sin is, that you're a precious sin of yours that you don't want to get rid of. If you're rebelling against Jesus and you know it, then every heartbeat of yours is a heartbeat of rebellion. Every breath of yours is a breath of rebellion. Think about that. Every beat is a rebellious beat. Every breath is a rebellious breath. That's sobering. If you refuse to respond to the merciful God, it will not end well. That's why 1 Kings chapters 15 and 16 is in your Bible. So that you and I could be reminded of that. So that we would be reminded when we stiff arm Jesus, every heartbeat, every breath is rebellious. And I'm not talking about just you sin because we all sin all day, all the time. I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. When there's that sin that you don't want to let go of. You don't want to repent of. You don't want to go down to that deep, dark place of your heart where Jesus is waiting, saying, let's deal with this. You just want to kind of push it and say, I don't want to think about that. That's what I'm talking about. When we're just holding on to those sins and saying, my precious, I can't let it go. When we're doing that, every heartbeat and every breath is a heartbeat and a breath of rebellion. And so we're going to hear a lot about men who do this today, the, the evil that these men do. But as we see all this evil happening, be on the lookout for phrases that speak of the word of the Lord. That's one of the key themes to these several chapters. The author of 1 Kings wants to remind us about God's word and remind the original audience who are in captivity in Babylon about God's word. To remind us that it's true and that what God's word says will happen, will happen. And so let's look at that word now. 1 Kings chapter 15, beginning in verse 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Basha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Basha struck him down at Gibbethon, 
which belonged to the Philistines, for Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned and that he made Israel to sin, and because of the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. What we find here in these verses is that this is just vintage Yahweh. What God does here in 1 Kings chapter 15, he does all the time. He uses evil men to punish other evil men, and then he later he judges the evil men that he used to punish the evil men. And if that bothers you, my advice is to repent. Because God can do what God wants to do. And what he does when he does this is bring judgment down on evil men for their evil actions and their evil hearts. So don't feel sorry for these guys. Don't feel sorry for Nadab. Don't feel sorry for Jeroboam's family. They could have repented. They had plenty of chances to repent. They had God's word. God clearly told them what he would do to them if they walked away. He revealed his heart to them. He revealed his law, and they didn't give a hoot about it. So don't feel sorry for them. They could have repented, but they didn't. But we can. We still have a chance to repent because we're still breathing And our hearts are still beating. Jared Wilson said, People have lots of problems, and the church can help with many of them. But if we are not helping our people comprehend, confront, and confess their sin, we are failing them. That's what we want to do as a church to help you repent, to help you comprehend your sin to help you confront your sin and not shrink back from what's deep down in the darkest recesses of your heart and to help you confess your sin. That's what we've been doing throughout this whole series in 1 Kings. Now, I know, I know, church growth gurus would not recommend this strategy. How do you grow a church? Help people comprehend, confront, and confess their sin. Who does that? We do. Grace Baptist Church of Santa Maria. It's a crazy plan, I know, but it's biblical. It's what the prophets of the Old Testament do all over the place, right? It's what Jesus did. Paul, Peter, John, all of them said, repent. All of those New Testament epistles that are just chock full of what? It's Peter and Paul and John just helping people comprehend and confront and confess their sin. It's a crazy church growth strategy, but it's biblical. And it works. 
and it brings revival and it brings renewal. Not, we're not talking numeric growth. Maybe that'll happen. I don't know. It brings what we all need, spiritual growth. I mean, who knew? Helping people comprehend, confront, and confess their sin. In a politically correct world that denies sin, who knew that's how renewal comes to a church? God knew. If we want God to come to church at grace, that's how he comes. We begin to comprehend the depth of our sin and confront it and confess in healing and renewal will come to our marriages, to our relationships, everything. But we got to go to those dark places in our heart that we don't want to go. And when we get there, Jesus is there. And so we can. We can confront those places because Jesus is there ready to heal us. We don't go alone. We show up and he says, I've been waiting on you. Now let's get to work. I want more of that in my life. So the appropriate response to these kinds of passages that we're seeing in 1 Kings is to repent and to give thanks to God that he does save sinners like us. And then to be encouraged that the evil men and the evil leaders of our world do not go unnoticed by God. Jesus sees them. Evil is not running around without a leash Actually, evil serves Yahweh. Evil men like Nadab and Basha and all their evil plans, they're actually the servants of Yahweh. God may use another evil man to judge evil leaders and then turn around and judge the evil man that he used to judge said evil leaders. I know that's not politically correct, and I know that won't make more people flock into this church, but it's true. And my job is to tell the truth, even if people get offended. King Nadab walked in the sins of his father, Jeroboam. All the sacred prostitution, where you went to church and were engaged in those activities, and people said, how was church today? It was great. Nadab walked in that the worshiping of other gods, the creating and fashioning of these metal images, the creating the, the, the gold cows that Jeroboam created and worshiping them at the altars in the cities of Dan and Bethel, the false sacrifices, the appointing of priests who weren't from the tribe of Levi. Nadab walked in all the ways of his dad, like father, like son, and it cost him his life because he stiff-armed the Lord. It was prophesied by the prophet Ahijah, if you remember back in chapter 14, that all of this would happen. Your family's going to come to ruin. But they didn't repent. They ignored the word of God. And so Basha is now fulfilling the word of the Lord that was given to Jeroboam back in chapter 14, that all these things were going to happen. Basha killed to become king. But Basha's family will be swept away just like Jeroboam's family. Look at verse 33. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over all Israel at Terzah, and he reigned 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. 
And the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha, saying, Since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will utterly sweep away Basha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Anyone belonging to Basha who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Now the rest of the acts of Basha and what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Basha slept with his fathers and was buried at Terzah. And Elah, his son, reigned in his place. Moreover, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha and his house, both because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands, in being like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. So we get more of the same stuff again here, and we're going to see more of it as we go along. Sinners stiff-arming the overwhelming mercy of God. On and on, just the same thing. This passage really just shows us how boring evil and sin really is. I mean, when you think about it, sin is really boring. And this passage may even strike you as boring. Unless you're a dog or a bird. Because they're promised their dinner in these verses. And so evil and sin is kind of boring when you think about it. I mean, it might be fun at first... For a season, that's why we do it, right? We like it. But it never satisfies, does it? The thrill wears off. It always does. It's a temporary pleasure that does not and cannot satisfy like Jesus. That's what we were singing earlier. Jesus is better. See, sin is just the same old, same old. It's not new. It's not creative. It's not life-giving It's not refreshing. It's not reinvigorating, is it? It kills. It brings decay. Decay. It's lazy. Sin is lazy. It's just the same old rebellion. Doesn't want to put the work in to come up with something creative and life-giving and refreshing. Sin is lazy. It always just brings death and decay. It's just the same old rebellion. And while sin is up to its boring ways, Yahweh's word always shows up in the middle of evil men thinking that they are getting away with evil. Just like Nadab, just like Basha. Let this be a caution for us. We can't get away with sin. God's word will always come to his people. And when it does, It's always merciful. It's always merciful. Jesus comes in when we're in the middle of just loving our sin and saying, my precious, my precious. And Jesus comes in and kind of grabs us by the collar and says, come here, son. It's mercy. But if we keep stiff-arming Jesus and saying, my precious, I don't want you, Jesus, my precious, he just might hand us over And give us what we're fighting with him over. And that never ends well. It's suicidal to hang on to our darling sins. 
better than being handed over to our darling precious sins by Jesus? Better than him saying, fine, if you want it, go ahead. Let's see how this plays out. I'll wait. Better than that is handing over our darling precious sins. Handing them over to Jesus in confession to be forgiven and then forsaken. But what you might miss in this passage is the mercy of God. Yahweh sent the prophet Jehu to tell Basha that he was a goner. That's mercy. You're going to be wiped out. That's mercy. God's letting him know ahead of time. You're going to be wiped out. You should change your ways. That's mercy. Basha could have cried out for mercy then. Basha could have got low before the Lord and said, forgive me. Basha could have repented because he was still breathing. His heart was still beating. Basha could have comprehended and confronted and confessed his sin, but he didn't. He could have cried out for mercy. And if you're still breathing, you can still cry out for mercy. If your heart's still beating, you can still cry out for mercy today. But Basha's heart was hardened. That's what sin does. It promises all this stuff, and we're like, look at all the glitter and the gold. It's going to be wonderful. It promises all this stuff, and what it does is harden and calcify our hearts to Jesus, our first love. Sin hardens our hearts so that even when God is merciful to us, we push him away. Sin hardens our hearts to Jesus, our first love. And when he comes to us and woos us in mercy because our hearts have been hardened and calcified by sin, in those moments, we push him away. Don't let Basha's life be a waste. Let him speak to you today. If Basha were here, he would tell you, I played around with sin. I didn't take God seriously. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do and it made my heart cold to Jesus. And when he mercifully sent a prophet to me, I didn't repent because my heart was so hardened. I wasn't even interested. Don't let that happen to you. If you're running from the Lord, you might run so far that your heart gets so hard that you won't respond to him anymore. You can't hear his voice anymore. Stop what you're doing. Come back home to Jesus. He loves you. He'll forgive you. Jesus will forgive you if that's you today because Jesus loves stupid, empty, ungrateful, waffling, confused, suicidal sinners. Jesus loves drama-prone people, high-maintenance people, extra sinners. Foul-mouthed people, anxiety-ridden. Jesus loves the messiest kind of people you can think of. That's amazing. Maybe this is you today. Jesus still loves you, and he's saying to you today, just come home. And if you think Basha is a stupid, empty, ungrateful, waffling, and confused sinner, then wait until you meet Ayla. Because King Ayla will follow his dad, Basha, as king. And Ayla will say, Dad, hold my beer. Ayla will drink one too many Budweiser's, and it will cost him his life. 
Look at verse 8 now. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, began to reign over Israel in Terzah, and he reigned two years. But his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him when he was at Terzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household in Terzah. Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. When he began to reign, as soon as he had seated himself on his throne, he struck down all the house of Basha. He did not leave him a single male of his relatives or his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Basha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet, for all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols." Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So by the time Elah was finishing off his six-pack of Bud Light, Zimri came in and took out the tipsy king. And then Zimri took out all of Basha's family. And not just his family, even Basha's friends got the axe. And once again, we see that Zimri is the instrument that Yahweh uses to fulfill the word that he spoke to Basha through Jehu. Once again, we see that God uses evil men to punish other evil men, and then later he judges the evil men that he used to punish the evil men. And if that still bothers you this far into the sermon, my advice is still the same. You should repent because God can do what God wants to do, and he's never wrong, ever. And so Zimri and Ayla's hearts were too cold and too hardened to resonate with the greatest thing in the universe. The free and undeserved mercy of God for sinners in Christ. Their hearts didn't resonate with that. And there's still people like this today. Well, they might not be kings, but their hearts are cold to the gospel. Listen, if the gospel does not thrill you, if you think the gospel is just ho-hum, then it's proof that you think too highly of yourself. Even in the church, people can be this way. The more clearly the gospel is preached in sermon after sermon, the more it inevitably sparks controversy. People in church really don't want to hear that they are sinners. Well, so be it. Because we're going to be a church that plasters all over the walls that Jesus saves sinners and only sinners. And that truth is what so many people, even in the church, resist with all of their being. That truth that Jesus saves sinners It's the thing that you've been looking for your whole life, whether you realize it or not. It's the thing that Ayla was looking for every time he popped the top on a beer and went bottoms up. It's the thing that Ayla was looking for at the bottom of that bottle. It's the thing that Zimri was looking for as he sharpened his blade to slice up tipsy Ayla. God saves and forgives sinners, and he loves forgiving sinners. Please understand that God would rather forgive us. God would rather bless us. He's generous with his mercy. 
Jesus is rich with mercy, and he's not stingy. Jesus is rich with mercy. He is not stingy at all. He's loaded with mercy. And he's not stingy. You don't have to twist his arm behind his back and make him cry uncle. Because Jesus is rich and he's not stingy with his mercy. He's been merciful to you your whole life. He's been merciful to you all week. And he's waiting on you to cry uncle to his mercy. Jesus prefers dispensing mercy. That's his knee-jerk reaction, to show mercy. But if we refuse him like King Ayla did, he will discipline us. He would rather save us and bless us. He would rather bless our socks off, but he will discipline if need be, if we keep fighting him over our precious and darling sins. And so God simply will not just sit back drinking a pina colada and endorse our stupidity. He won't. And I love that about Jesus. He's not going to just sit back and endorse our stupidity when we hang on to our darling sins. Jesus comes to save us from our stupidity because we hang on to our darling sins. And if we're dumb enough to chase after other gods, and we all are from time to time, if we're dumb enough to stiff arm his mercy, Jesus will not sit back and look the other way. And isn't that what you want in God? Don't you want a God who doesn't leave you to yourself? Don't you want a God who doesn't support your stupidity and get behind you in it and say, go ahead. I want that kind of God because I can be really stupid sometimes. I can be hard-hearted. I can waffle. And don't you want a God who cares about your broken heart? Don't you want a God who cares when you are so depressed that you can't even get out of bed? You can't even move. You don't want to. Don't you want a God who is close to the brokenhearted who just want to end it all? You have that God in Jesus. I'm telling you right now, you have that God in Jesus. And someone should have told King Zimri that because sadly, King Zimri did end it all. Look at verse 15. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Terza. Now the troops were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And the troops who were encamped heard it said, Zimri has conspired and he has killed the king. Therefore, all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. So Omri went up from Gibbethon and all Israel with him, and they besieged Terzah. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died because of his sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for his sin which he committed making Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the conspiracy that he made, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And so King Zimri went on a killing spree, took out Basha's family, but he only lasted as king for seven days. 
Once word got out what he did to Ela and Basha's family, the people made Omri king, and then they went to confront Zimri. And when he saw that the city was surrounded, he went into his house and poured some gasoline all over his bedroom, and then he lit the place on fire, and he took his own life. His sins had caught up to him. Instead of worshiping Yahweh and receiving his grace and his mercy, Zimri too walked in the ways of King Jeroboam. I mean, what a sad chapter. I mean, we have, we have whole families being wiped out here and friends in some cases, and that's sad. But is this the worst thing that could happen? Whole families being wiped out? Is this the most horrible thing that could happen? No, it's not. Let me explain. The worst thing that could happen to any human being is that they lose their awe of God. The worst thing that could happen to any human being is that they lose their awe of God. This is the greatest tragedy in the universe. God's people in rebellion against him. The church rebelling against her savior who gave his life and gave his blood for her at the cross. That's all that we're seeing in these verses. His church spurning their Lord. A church family that has lost their all. That's the greatest tragedy. The worst thing that could happen is not losing the throne like Nadab and Basha and Ela and Zimri. The worst thing that could happen is not losing your hard-earned investments It's not bankruptcy. It's not foreclosure. It's not losing your job. The worst thing that can happen is what happened with all of the kings of Israel in this chapter. They lost their awe of God. They no longer delighted in the glory of the Lord. They no longer enjoyed God. They no longer tasted and saw that the Lord is good. That's the worst thing that can happen to any of us. It's just... Lose our awe, lose our wonder, lose our astonishment of Jesus and the gospel. And that means then that the very best thing that could happen to us is to be alive again to the sweetness and the goodness of God. The greatest thing that can happen to us is to experience revival and renewal in our hearts where we begin to love once again and enjoy the sweetness and the goodness of God to us in Christ. To be awakened again to his glory as our joy. To taste and see again that he is good. That's the very best thing that could happen to us. And sometimes we have to be humbled by God to experience that awakening again. Sometimes we drift so far away and we don't savor Jesus anymore. And so he comes and he humbles us through painful disciplines so that we will be awakened to his glory again. That's how these kings should have responded to the discipline of the Lord. They should have returned. That's what Zimri should have done. 
But instead of turning back to Yahweh to receive forgiveness for walking in the ways of Jeroboam, sadly, Zimri took his life. That's sad. And that's tragic. And I don't want that for any of you. Maybe you heard about it, but just this week, a pastor in L.A. took his life. He had a ministry specifically devoted to people who struggle with depression and mental illness and suicide. He was open about his struggles. And he took his life on World Suicide Prevention Day. Earlier in the day, he had done a funeral for a woman who had committed suicide. And then later that night, he took his own life. That's sad. He leaves behind a wife and two cute little boys. So please be praying for the family and the church family of Jared Wilson. And if you struggle with depression, please get help. Don't do what Zimri did. Reach out to someone. Call someone. Call the National Suicide Hotline. 1-800-273-TALK. Write it down. Put it in your phone. 1-800-273-TALK. You never know when you might need it, when it will come in handy for you. It may shock you that a very successful pastor took his own life, a pastor who had a ministry to people who struggle with depression. But pastors are not immune to this. I have struggled with depression my whole life. I know what it's like. I know the temptation to end it all. And so if you struggle, if you're here, please get help. Please call someone. Call me. Listen, this church is a safe place to talk about these things. I'm telling you right now from the pulpit that I struggle with this. And so you will not be shamed for struggling with depression at this church. And if someone does shame you for this, tell me and I will kindly go rebuke them in the power of the Spirit. This church is a safe place because we're family here. You can talk openly about your struggles with depression. You can talk openly about any of your struggles here in this church. And so if you struggle with depression and you find yourselves tempted at times to just end it all, please do two things for me. Number one, reach out to someone. Call somebody. Text somebody. Talk to someone before you do it. And number two, wait one more day. Sometimes just getting some sleep can help. And if you're ever at that place and it's so dark, tell yourself, Pastor Benji knows exactly what I'm going through. He told me to wait one more day and to talk to someone. Will you do that for me? Wait one more day and talk to someone. And cry out to Jesus, obviously. Cry out to Jesus because he cares for you. Don't burn the house down like Zimri. Cry out to Jesus. Cry out to others. Let's walk together as a family. 
You can't do this alone. We're here for you. I am here for you. This is a safe place to come and say, you know what? I just want to end it all. Help. It's a safe place for you to come and say that. Hold on to the promise of Psalm 34, verse 18, which says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That Hebrew word near, karov, is used in the Old Testament of the the closest relative who comes along and helps the, the relative who is in need, who takes on all of their need, all of their hurts, everything about them. The closest relative that's near and comes and says, your burdens are now my burdens. That's what the psalm is saying, is that David is our, Jesus is our near relative. He's our big brother who comes to carry our burdens. And even if you can't hold on to that promise, that's okay because Jesus is holding on to you. Let Jesus hold you. Let him carry you. Rest in his arms and one day, maybe soon, maybe today, one day he is going to wipe away every tear. And he'll have to go through a whole box of Kleenex just on me to wipe away all my tears. But one day Jesus will wipe away every tear and make all the sad things come untrue. I mean, that's the last image that we have of Jesus in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. He's wiping away the tears of his people. He's pulling out a Kleenex and wiping away every tear. What does that tell us about Jesus? That the last image we have of him in the Bible is that he says, come here Let me wipe away your tears. I'm making everything new. I'm going to make all the sad stuff that happened to you come untrue. What does that tell us about him? That he's kind and that he's gentle and that he cares and that he's near, that he's close when your heart breaks. And so the good news of the gospel that we want plastered all over the walls of this church, all over all of our ministries, all over all of our meetings, all over all of our sermons, over everything here at Grace is this, that Jesus loves stupid, empty, ungrateful, waffling, confused, suicidal sinners. I hope that comforts your heart today. I hope you hear that big idea and you say, yes, it's true. There's hope even for me. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. Listen, you're not alone. We are here for you. This church is a safe place. You can talk about all of your struggles here. Don't be afraid to do that. And if you feel worthless, that is not Jesus speaking to you. If you feel worthless, and like you disappeared, it wouldn't even make a dent in the universe at all. If you feel worse, that is not Jesus speaking to you. That is the devil. And the devil is a sicko because he gets his kicks out of seeing people take their life. He got a kick when Zimri took his life. He's sick and he's twisted. So if you feel worthless, that's not Jesus speaking. That's the devil. You matter. You're an image bearer of God, created by him in his image. So you are special and you are loved and you are precious. So if you ever get to that place where it seems hopeless and you want to end it all, call me. Call us. Let's talk. Call someone. You can't do this by yourself. You're not capable of bearing these heavy burdens by yourself. 
That's why Jesus gave you a church family. And ultimately, Jesus is your burden bearer and you're precious to him. Believe that. Let's close with something that Ray Ortland said. He said, if you're a believer, remember that your sanctification is incomplete and every single day you need your Lord afresh. The world is distracting you. Satan is condemning you. Temptations are whispering to you. Familiar sins don't easily go away. Is it any wonder that sometimes we buckle? Let's remember how weak, how bad we still are. The Bible warns us, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Let's be realistic. We're more evil than we know. We're spring-loaded to fall away from God. It is a sin to fall out of love with God. It is a sin of the greatest magnitude, and it isn't hard to do. But secondly, let's be realistic about Him as well. Christ loves empty, ungrateful, waffling, confused sinners. He restores our souls. When the shepherd finds his lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders and carries it home rejoicing. He awakens our repentance by his kindness. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. If Satan discourages you, if your sins hold you back, if your shame tells you to hide, if your conscience says you've gone too far, God says, return, for I am merciful. The God whom you've offended tells you to return to his mercy. And God's word overrules every objection. Remember that. Remember that the cross of Christ was the gushing forth of the ocean of God's mercies for stupid sinners. It's the costly display of the love of God at the cross of Christ that restores our souls. When your faith is weak, His love is strong. That's the gospel. Believe it. I hope you believe it today. To not believe it would be tragic. I don't want any of you leaving today and not being assured and comforted by this truth. The cross of Christ was the gushing forth of the ocean of God's mercies for stupid sinners. That's the gospel. Believe it. When your faith is weak, His love is strong. That's the gospel. Believe it. Jesus loves stupid, empty, ungrateful, waffling, confused suicidal sinners. That's the gospel. Believe it. Jesus, we thank you that you do love us. And we readily admit that we are a mess. We're more evil and bad than we even know. That's just pride, Lord. We're just thinking too highly of ourselves. But when compared against your white-hot holiness, God, how can we not say that we're sinners? And yet, you love us. Holy Spirit, show us our sin. Take us by the hand to the deepest, 
darkest recesses of our hearts where we've hidden away our precious darling sins and help us to comprehend them, help us to confront them, help us to confess them. And then bring renewal and bring revival to us and our families in this church and our city and our country. Jesus, would you make your very special presence known to those whose hearts are just breaking, whose hearts hurt this morning. Would they feel your presence today and hang on for one more day? In your name we pray, amen.